All right. Well, let's, if you've got your Bibles here today, let's open them up. Let's dig into the book of Acts. If you need a Bible, um, my beautiful assistants will be coming down. And they'll, uh, they'll give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, man, please feel free to take it home. Now, what we've been doing in the book of Acts is we've been talking about the early days of a church and watching God nurture this church and grow it into what became, in a lot of ways, a global force. And, and in fact, it's kind of hard to imagine, but for almost 24 hours now, Christians all over the planet have been worshiping Jesus Christ because of what began back in the, the beginning in Acts 2. And one of the things we've tried to say, and even it represented in this picture, is the roots of Christianity are deeply entwined into the Old Covenant, into the Old Testament, that, that everything that was happening in the Old Covenant that we learn about in the Old Testament was what God was doing in His developing story to bring about what He had started way back in Genesis, a group of people that would be image bearers, that would be these ones that display Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus had been promising it, and he even told them in Acts 1.8, he said, look, here's what you're here for. I'm leaving you here to be my witnesses. He uses this word marturos, these ones who will now announce that Jesus Christ is king, that he is the fulfillment of this entire root system that is the Old Testament. Your king has arrived. Go announce it to all the world and call them now to repent, to turn from their ways and come to the one who promised them life and not only any kind of a life, but eternal life and life that, that is absolutely satisfying. But don't do it, he says, until the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And oh my goodness, man, the Holy Spirit falls upon that group of people on the first day. (laughs) Tongues like fire. And sometimes we read that and get bored. Can you imagine being there watching this thing? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. I mean, I'd be like, whoa, you got something on your head. But there's just that side of it in which things were going to be all new. People's lives were going to be transformed. People were going to think differently, operate differently. And you even see that in this early church, the way that they, they cared for one another and sold things to, out of their excess to be able to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. They gathered together to pray. And, and the big key that starts to come here, they studied the word because they really believed that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the core of who we are. It's this means by which God grows us. And so they studied it and they fellowshiped together and they took the Lord's Supper just proclaiming his name. They even showed how things were going to become new in Acts 3. I mean, sometimes I wanted to be a little fly on the wall when Peter and John walk by and they look at the dude that's sitting there. It's been crippled since he was young and says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I I give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up. Hello. It's the story of things being made new. But we also know this starting back in Genesis 3 that everything that God seeks to do to develop out what he is doing on this planet in regards to his plan, Satan stands in opposition against it. Acts 4, for the first time, the church experiences oppression. They take the guys and they bring them before the Sanhedrin and make them give an answer for, in whose name did you heal this guy? Now, they didn't want to hear it, but check this out. Every time something good or even bad in our, our context happens, they get to announce Jesus Christ to them. 
Even when they told the apostles to shut up, the apostles said, we're not going to. So Satan standing against them didn't stop him. So he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll weave a little sin into this, Acts 5. That's how I'm going to stop it. That's going to be the plan. Didn't stop it again. It says the church just kept growing in number because all of a sudden people realized this God is a God not only that adores us, but he's a God to be feared. Then we come along in Acts 5 also, and we see this group of people now that are drugged before the Sanhedrin, and for the first time ever, God, in the massive mural that he's painting together, he writes in red, showing just the demonstration. We get to display God even sometimes through being persecuted. See, all of this is showing, and kind of one of the things we're trying to use in the use of a dandelion is, is you know this, that dandelions, the reason we chose it, they're really hard to kill. The church is the magnificent dandelion of God that no matter what happens, it just keeps springing up. And the same sun, God, that causes this plant to grow last week, we also found it causes it to mature. That One of the ways that God spreads the, the, the word is that you know this when a dandelion, when the petals fall off, the seeds come to the top and watch out because when that thing matures, it's about ready to go everywhere. And so we're just seeing this just begin to settle in. So the question we should be asking ourselves in this story is what's Satan going to do next? And the other thing is, is what's God going to do? Well, in chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, it tells us a little bit about the time in which we're in. It says it's this time in which the church is just growing. It's, it's trying to describe that as that it's just expanding at an incredible rate. In fact, possibly by this time, this church has about 10,000 people in it. This thing that even in spite of the oppression, the different things happen to it, it just keeps growing. It's the dandelion. You can't stop it. But the thing now that I think that's going to be key to this that we're going to talk about is this this word that we sometimes throw around called failure. is that the thing that Satan's now going to weave into this is failure. Now, let me just say this. All of us in this room fail. Let me say it again. All of us in this room fail. The problem is we don't like to acknowledge that we're a bunch of failures. I'm not a failure. Yes, you are. That's why you needed Jesus. If you were so great, then why in the world do we need Jesus Christ? But built into the work of God is this concept that he understands that we fail, that, that we, we don't do everything perfectly. This week I met with uh, just one of the elders and I sat down across from him and I just looked at him and I was like, okay, dude, can we talk parenting for a little bit? Now, it wasn't so much my kids. We know this. that Kids are kids. I mean, that's part of who it is. Our biggest problem is parents. We need to grow in our parenting. And I looked at him. I go, why don't parents acknowledge that they're failures? He starts laughing at me. He goes, because nobody wants to acknowledge that they're a failure. We all struggle and we fail. In fact, from the very moment that you're born, do you realize that the only reason that you learn to walk is it was a series of learning how to fail well? Even walking is this ongoing way in which we can either do this, and this is what we're going to watch from this text, 
we were either fail into a form of mediocrity. And what I mean by that is we can fail and we can try to hide it. We can explain it away. We can be these groups of people that don't ever deal with it. Or we can fail into a maturity. We can fail into who God wants us to be. Now let's look at the failure down in verse 1. Here's what they say. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. We're going to kind of see this place in which they failed. It says, In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What's the key there? Failure. There was this group of women that was kind of marked by it, says they were Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews. See, at this particular time, and just so we can kind of understand the history of it, so we can understand what's going on here, is that people that were, that, that were part of the diaspora or the Jews that left Jerusalem, they would go all over the Roman Empire. When they went all over the Roman Empire and they begin to age and they begin to kind of collect money and get everything together, oftentimes they would do what a lot of people do. They went south, man. They went to Florida. In other words, there became a large amount of people that would go back to the Holy Land kind of as the snowbirds of their time. They would live there, and we know this, that generally women live longer than men. And you begin to have a mass of widows that were in this particular culture. Now, you can't study the Old Testament long without realizing that in the law, and even in the poetry, like the book of Proverbs, and, the, and even when you get into uh, the prophets, God has a massive heart for the marginalized, and that includes the widows. In fact, he's so serious about it is, is that if you don't take care of them, you will feel my wrath come against you. In fact, you will know that you are far from me by how you take care of the marginalized within you. And that even includes the widows. They knew this was serious, that we needed to take care of them. But as these widows that were a part of, of the temple would come to know Jesus Christ, more than likely the widows were no longer being cared by the Jewish people, part of the temple. They were rejected at that particular point. And so the church took on the care of all the widows that were becoming a part of this church. Probably hundreds of them. And to the surface comes a complaint. Now, where have we heard that word before? The term complaint is the same word that's used when the people of Israel are roaming around the wilderness. It says they begin to what? Complain. Now, on one end, you would see this and you would start to go, gosh, this has a ring, man. Anytime God starts to do something, his people start to what? Complain. But what's cool about what happens here is it begins to move into a solution. See, let me just say this to you. Anytime you hit a problem in which there's a failure, one of the things that we tend to do least that we need to do the most is to do this one thing, communicate. We need to actually talk about it. I've failed. I've failed in this. Or look, you're failing me in this particular area. In other words, we need to talk. Now what's so cool about what happens in this moment is a group of godly men within this Hellenist Jews, they decided that we're going to bring this to the apostles. Now within a church, this, this never happens. We don't complain. But the problem of complaining is that it can move to murmuring and when it moves to murmuring, it can move to gossip and it can divide a church extremely fast. It has to be talked about. 
So these godly men came to the apostles and said, fellas, we got a problem. We got a failure to communicate. Now what's really cool in this solution is that's the first part of any failure is we got to communicate. But not only that, there's another thing that's part of this failure, which is, and you'll see this down at the very end of, look at verse 2 at the very end. It says they also realized that they were doing too much, and in doing too much, they were no longer engaged in the word because they were caught up serving tables. Now, on one end, that would seem like, dang, who are they? Are they above serving tables? No. What they're trying to say is, is that our task is to bring the word of God to the people, but because we're caught up doing all these other things, we're neglecting the very thing that Jesus gave to us, that in order for us to be a people that announce the message to the world, we've got to put time in the word into people's lives. Why? It's what I said earlier, that God's people have always wanted the book because it's a book that is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts into the heart of who people are. This word that we have in front of us that that it tells us in 2 Timothy, it is God-breathed. It is something that makes us wise unto salvation. It's 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3. It's the seed that comes into a person's life and brings them into this new life. It's the same milk that we're supposed to drink over and over again. And you know this when a church begins to neglect the word the church will die the old testament just tells the story about god's people neglecting the book that was what was so special when young josiah came to the surface and he called his people back to the book it's not an arrogance that we're not supposed to serve tables they just realized if we get away from this the church dies Both of these things are important. And so it's just begging for a solution. So what do they do? Look at the beginning of verse verse two. It says the disciple or the apostles called all the people together. In other words, we need to talk. Now I used to think back in my head, it was like, okay, we're gonna gather 10,000 people. And so they sat there in front of 10,000 people. Here's our idea. But the apostles were never ivory tower. They weren't there to hand edicts from on high. Remember how the people were learning at this time? They were learning house to house to house to house. See, at that particular time, what oftentimes happened was when a minority would rise up, they would squash it, but not the apostles. They began going, and I think it's the key here. It's not so much that they had a massive meeting. They just began going house to house to house with the people. See, the church is not a hierarchy. The reality of me as a pastor is that I'm not more special than you that I'm a pastor. It just means I've been called to something differently than what maybe many of you are called to. But the the thing that the apostles understand is what Peter tells us is all of us are priests. It's It's the concept of the priesthood of the believer that was talked about all throughout the Reformation. All of us are to play a part in it. It's just all of us play different parts. And they didn't believe they had all the solutions, which goes against every leadership book that's out there. Everybody believes that the leaders have all the solutions. Let me just tell you something. I don't. You don't know how many times people come in and sit across from me in counseling. They're like, oh, you're going to have the solutions. You went to seminary. I see your certificate on the wall. You're smart. 
They start telling me their problem and the whole time I'm going, okay, God, you better show up here because I don't have a clue what I'm going to tell them. And I'm like, oh, tell me more. And the only reason I say tell me more is because I still don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Fascinating. Why don't you still tell me about your mom? <sighs> we don't have all the answers. All of us are just in process, aren't we? We're trying to figure this thing out. Maybe I have a little bit more Bible knowledge than some of you. But we're all just these people trying to figure this thing out. They came up with a solution. I love this. Here's what our solution is going to be. They tell us, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, here's what we're going to do. In order to solve this, this failure that we have, I want you to pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. What's their solution? Generally what we as Americans do is we come up with a program. I know what we're going to do. We're going to have a program. We're going to put an acronym to it. We'll call it ABC. That's what we'll do. Change the people's lives. They didn't go to a program. They went to people. The solution inside of the church is always founded in how God is not going to use programs. He's going to use people. And when a church becomes absolutely dependent upon programs, the church dies because it was never meant to be developed on a program. It was meant to be developed as God works through people in the power of his Holy Spirit. Programs come and go, but you know this, man, don't you? Within local churches, a program gets in there and it gets its claws in. And the moment you say, hey, we're going to try something different, people go, no, you remove the program and the world will fall apart. No. The thing we don't remove is people. And not just any people. In fact, the way that he characterizes these people is I want you to find people from among you. Now, why did he say, I want you to choose people from among you? It's the people that you watch. You see them in work and life and marriage. You see them in their family. You see them when they go out onto the soccer fields. Are they the angry parent that's mad at the umpire anymore? You probably don't want him. You want these people. He even clarifies it even more that have good repute. They got a reputation. As you watch them in all these various facets of life, the one thing that you see about them is whether they're hanging around church or whether they're out in public, they're the same person. They're not duplicitous. They're not two-faced. Is that who they are, they're what you see is what you get. I want you to look for that type of a person. And I always laugh because if you guys are anything like me, man, it's like it seems like before we ever go to church, man, demons show up. And my kids go off the deep end, right? And you're getting everybody all ready. You're chaotic and kids are going off there and you're trying to get everything under control. You finally get them in the car. You show up at church and you walk in like this. (sighs) You know full well in your heart you have just had a spiritual battle of epic proportions, but yet Jesus is good. Real. I think the word is we use, they're just the real deal. They're not fake. They're authentic. 
In order to pull off this ministry, they're about ready to be handed that, and by the way, is going to be a ministry that had food and money and all kinds of things. Choose people that as you watch them in everyday life, they're authentic. What else are we looking for? He says this. They're also full of the Spirit. This word that we've been using all throughout the book of Acts, it's the way that, 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 that Chris talked about it. Unction. I'll never forget, man, I was hearing a sermon one time, and it, it was uh, uh, Evie Hill. And man, he's preaching away, and I'll never forget this. He goes, gentlemen, it's unction. The way he said it, I'm like, hey, yes, I need unction. What is unction? It's groups of people that don't act first and ask God to come along. We ask first and go where God wants us to go. And wherever he goes, we will go with authority and power. They're the guys that know God. And in 1 John 2, it talks about children and young men and old men. It talks about these children trying to figure out who is this God that we know. The young men, right? He kind of talks about a maturing of them. They're the guys that want to take hell with the squirt gun. <laughs> the Yosemite Sams of the church. But then when it gets to these people that he talks about the older men, you know what it says about them? They know God. You know those people that just know God? While the world is doing this, they're this because they know God. They're full of the Spirit. They're dependent. God, wherever you want to go, we'll go. The last one he talks about is full of wisdom. And in order to carry out this task that they had of caring for these precious widows, they needed to be full of wisdom, which wisdom is the capacity, this man that knows the book and lives the book, but he knows how to bring it into real life. He's not the guy that can read Chilton's, which, by the way, is just, just, just books on how to work on cars. Man, I could sit down, I'm a book nut, and I could read Chilton's and get done and go, let me tell you something, what that's connected to, you've got uh, over here a horn bearing, and a horn bearing is connected over here, you know, to your, uh, your wiper uh, belt, and you know the book, but you don't know how to make it real. You've watched these guys that have taken the book and they've brought it into real life. They know how to make decisions about all kinds of things because they know the book. They said, what you need to go look for is those type of people. And they said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna get back to the word and to prayer. That's our job. In order to do our job, to announce to the world where we're going is we're going to have to be in the book. We've got to be men of the book. We've got to teach the book. We've got to help you because we don't want to just be the only people that are witnesses. We want you to be witnesses. Remember last week I talked about this idea that to not witness about Jesus Christ is a sin? Well, to not help people to learn how to witness about God is actually setting them up for failure. And they're saying, we don't want to do that. But not only that, I love this. They said, we need to pray. We need to be these guys that are on our own in front of God going, God, here's who I am. Where do you want us to go as a group of people? They're the ones that pray over the sick, the ones that pray amongst people. It's not so much that they walk around in robes and announce themselves as these pious ones. 
But they're the guys that stand in the book and look at the people and say, let's go this way. That's their solution. Now the question is, is how would the people respond? I love what it says in verse 5. It says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now is what he's saying here that the job of apostles, or even in our case, is the job of the pastors and elders to make everybody happy. My job today is to make you happy. I want everybody to leave happy. No, that's not what he's talking about. That word pleased means to be at peace, to reconcile. In other words, they sat there and they said, yeah, that just sounds right. Now, why did it sound right? Well, all throughout it, they would have had a biblical tone to it. In other words, remember I said they talked about this idea way back of people that were complaining and it would have had this biblical feel of everything that was happening way back in Exodus but also it had this feel according to like the, the whole story of Exodus 18 when, when Moses brought Jethro, or Jethro came to Moses and he said, Jeth- Moses, we got to change things. We got to do things differently. So on one end, the reason that it made sense is it just sounded biblical. I think the other thing was is that it showed that those guys that are making decisions in regards to the people, they weren't people that lorded it over them, but they saw these men that were coming down in and amongst the people that were acknowledging that they were failures. And let me just say on behalf of all the elders and pastors here at Cornerstone, we acknowledge that we are failures. In fact, the thing about Cornerstone, if you've been here long, we have a lot of successes, but we also have a lot of fails. Now, a lot of people are like, well, I don't know if I want to be here. (laughs) You're not perfect. No. And you know what? Not that we intend to, but just sometimes things don't go right. But that doesn't mean we as a church then decide, okay, let's create a place in which there's no failure. Let's make this safe, comfortable place where nothing can go wrong. That's not what they did here. I don't want a safe, comfortable place. I want it safe because God is here, but I'll tell you what, there's something about God's people that we're supposed to step out not in safety, but in faith. We step out and we engage wherever God wants us to go. Man, it's what is the heart for raising my kids. I don't want to raise safe kids. I want to create kids that are wise, that will take risks, that will learn what it means to walk by faith. If they fall down and break their leg, God has created this amazing thing called healing that happens. They can be fixed. When a church starts to operate in safety, it dies. The church was never meant to operate in safety. It was meant to operate in faith. And so what they were feeling at that time, it's just right. It says they went out and chose seven dudes. These guys became the prototype for what we'll see later in 1 Timothy 3 of deacons. You'll see one of them on there, Stephen, who we're going to find out next week is the first martyr. Another guy named Philip 
who's going to go and he's going to announce to the Samaritan. He's going he's to he's go and, and announce the witness of Jesus Christ. In other words, you can see this. They're setting up for the next kind of phase of the book of Acts. Is that as more and more people are developed, they're meant to go and to announce the greatest message ever. You'll see at the very end of it, look at the very end of that, verse 5. Nicholas, a proselyte. In other words, God isn't just a God of the Jewish people. He's a God of everyone. Everything is now set in place. Now later, you'll see this like in 1 Timothy 3. These aren't the deacons, but we're going to start to see there's also female deacons. 1 Timothy 3, it talks about wives. It's probably just seeing them as women. Like you get to Romans 16 and there's Phoebe and, and, and there's Chloe. There's all these different women. In fact, there's 10 women announced in the book of Romans 16 that were just these deaconesses that were engaged in the church. But they knew they needed help. The hardest thing for men to do is to ask for what? You don't believe me, go for a drive with them. Hey, you need some help? No, this way, yeah. I'm grabbing my cell phone and going, hey, Siri, you're a woman, help me. Not only that, verse 6, we see another response. They set them before the apostles, meaning they weren't the determiners of what it was. They set them in biblical authority before the leaders. And it says when they prayed, it probably has more the idea of, God, are these the ones? It's a, a prayer of affirmation. Are these the guys that you want? And then it says they laid their hands on them, which just means these men we trust. We will share this authority with them. You can trust them. Now let me just share with you something that's going to happen at Cornerstone for the first time in 22 years. For the first time in 22 years, we are going to add deacons to Cornerstone. Now, why? Some of you, especially in Baptist backgrounds, are going, oh, no. <laughs> Not deacons. Because we've realized, as elders and pastors, we need help. In order for us to be the people that we need to be to fulfill what God's called us to do, we need help. We need other godly men and women who can come alongside and help in all kinds of different ways. It's, it's not just about widows. It's about all kinds of things that the church does. Remember I told you we're not perfect? Well, even the people we choose won't be perfect, but there'll be people that are supposed to be those ones that are empowered by God. I want you to use this list here because you're going to help us. You're going to be the ones who are going to give us names of the people that you run around with. It's the people from among you. I want you to give us names of those that are of good repute, the ones that you see out there, that what you see is what you get, the real deal. The ones that are full of the Holy Spirit, those ones that just know God. The ones that also at the very end of it are full of wisdom. They know how to bring Scripture and do real things in life. We want you to take a month and just pray about it. And then, I don't care if you do it email, I don't care if you do it snail mail, I don't care if you call us, set up an appointment, do a smoke signal, I don't even care. But after prayerfully considering it, get us names. We would love to know those ones that as you see out there in real life, that we can begin to, to put in front of you and say, these are the ones that you can trust to follow, men and women. We'll walk through a process with them, and I just believe that God is going to bless us as cornerstone the more the leaders hand out leadership to other people.
Now, what was the impact? I love this verse 7. It says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, as other people grabbed ministry and the apostles got back to what they were supposed to do, the word does what it does so well, it spread. You want to see the word spread, you have to set apart certain men to engage in the teaching of God's word and the explaining of God's word and the engaging of God's word, but then you have to free them to be able to do it. That could have implications. I grew up in a small church in which the pastor did everything. I would love to tell you that I can do everything around Cornerstone and all the other pastors can, but we can't. We can't show up at every hospital visit. We can't show up at every little thing. But my hope is the more and more we grab people, the less and less things will fall through the cracks. But I know my job. My job on behalf of you and the job of other pastors is to make sure that the word of God is brought to you and that you're fed as God's people, that you're nurtured in it. Because I believe that the more and more that we engage in God's word, and, and it's not just in, the, in this whole thing of just learning more scriptural information. In other words, you're leaving to see this down there in, in, at the end of verse 7, is that a great many in Jerusalem, they became disciples, learners that are engaged out there in learning how do I live in this real world. And even then at the very end, the priests, see that little section, the priests came to know Christ? The people that you least expect to come to know Jesus came to know Jesus. I'll all the time hear people say, oh, there's no hope for the gospel in Simi Valley. We have too much. We're too rich. We're too this. We look around Simi Valley. We're cynical, aren't we? If you don't believe we are, look about who we're, who we're about ready to elect. God help us. Simi Valley can be reached. Moore Park can be reached. The Valley can be reached. T.O. can be reached. Chatsworth, Canoga Park, all those different areas can be reached. New churches can be planted. Why? Because the whole theme of the book of Acts is you can't stop the gospel. And when it goes forward, watch out because people's lives are transformed. On the board, see the little broken one? The church at times might look broken, but it's only God setting it up for what it has to do next. And what you're about ready to see is God do a work through Stephen. If you need prayer today because you're thinking, man, I'm the one who's failed into mediocrity, we'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're a dad who's failed into mediocrity. You're a mom. You're a person that just failed into mediocrity. You don't want to fail into mediocrity. You want to take your failure and mature. We'd love to pray for you. But don't forget, get us those names. Get us the people that we can entrust ministry to so that God can use Cornerstone to expand the gospel in the area that he's called us to. Amen? All right, Father, thank you so much for your word.
Father, help us to not be just hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of the word. Father, will you stoke through organizing Cornerstone in the way it's called to be organized through people? Would you stoke a work of your Holy Spirit in which people are equipped and trained where we're able to care for those within us, an an immense task, Father, so that we might demonstrate the gospel through how we care for one another in our world, but, Father, also that we can announce your message all over this place. Would you do a work in Simi Valley, in and through Cornerstone and all the other churches that know you? Father, don't let us buy into the lie that it's hard to reach a comfy culture. Father, help us to disrupt this culture with the grace of Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray, amen.